As you can see from the title of today's message, Who do you say that I am? And as I've just prayed, my hope is that we might all be able to see together in the word that Christ indeed is preeminent and worthy of all glory. That we'll be able to come to the same conclusion as Peter did in the passage that um, Ryan read to us first in Matthew, that Jesus is the Christ. And now through this passage, we'll be looking through this morning in Colossians. We'll see what Paul, who was once a highly credentialed Pharisee and an enemy of Christ and Christians, now through an amazing turn of events, sees Jesus for who he really is. So the question on the front of your service sheet, the title of today, Who do men say that I am? The King James says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus asked his disciples who the people thought that he was. And their responses were interesting. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus was asking his disciples this, it got me thinking, what if Jesus was to ask the session this question? Now, for those who don't know what a session is, it's something I found out just recently. A session is what you call a group of elders. You have a mob of kangaroos. Well, if you've got a group of elders together, they're called a session. So what would be the response if the session was asked about who do the people say that I am and what does reforming say about me? Well, I didn't canvas the community, if you're wondering. But what I did do is some research. And I found something rather interesting. Back in 2019, a company by, or called NCLS Research, I don't know who they are, but they did a survey on Australians and their view on God and Jesus. I don't know who they surveyed. I assume they canvassed the, um, the, a wide group of people from all different walks of life. So... Let's have a look at some of these results and maybe you could ask yourselves the same questions. Because I promise you, knowing who Jesus truly is will change your life. Firstly, the question was asked, what statement best reflects your understanding of Jesus? 57% believe that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. 22.4% believe that Jesus is a mythical or fictional character. And 20.4% said they don't know. Second question that this mob asked, which statement, if any, reflects your beliefs about Jesus Christ? 19.6 said he was a normal human being. 26.1 said that God in human form who, loved among, who lived among the people in the first century. 29.3 said he was a prophet or a spiritual leader, but not God. 21% said they don't know when three... 0.8% said other. And the last question that I looked at was, which statement reflects your views on the resurrection? 22.5% said that they believed the resurrection of Jesus, word for word as described in the Bible. 
24.3% said they believe in the resurrection. But the story from the Bible shouldn't be taken literally. 33.5% said, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And 19.7% said they don't know. If you've asked yourself these questions, what else would you give? But now we're going to look at Paul's response. Paul's response to this question. We saw Peter's response in the book of Matthew, the question, who do you say that I am? And we saw the Australian, we've seen the Australian communities. So now as we look to Paul's response, although he wasn't asked directly by Peter, we get to see what he knows of Jesus through this letter to, that he's written to the Colossian church. And I want us to delve deep into each verse, have a look at each individual verse, and draw out the preeminence of Christ. And I believe that we will see that life without him, the Lord Jesus Christ, is no life at all. So verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. Here Christ is called the image of God, and when we think of the word image, what comes to mind? It is what would or could be described as a picture or maybe a portrait, but more in the photographic sense as a painting is subjective to the interpretation of the artist. So Jesus is a portrait of God being the image of God. But what does that look like? as it says that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 shows us what it looks like. It says he, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But in the cross-reference reading in, in John chapter 1 verse 18, it says that no one has seen God. So how can this be? How can Jesus be the image of something that is not seen? Well, God has revealed himself in the form of his Son. As the scripture tells us, he's God manifest in the flesh. To the point where Jesus would say that I and the Father are one, and whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Both of those references are in John. So how do we go from seeing Jesus just as an historical figure to seeing him as the Son of God? The image of God. Well, we do get a bit of an understanding to that in First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which says, In their case, the God of this world, being the devil, the same one who deceived Eve, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Unbelievers. Makes you think about the answers that we saw in the in the community survey, doesn't it? Paul's mind was once blind too, until he literally saw the glory of God when he met Jesus at the crossroads on his way to Damascus. And to find out more about this meeting, about Paul seeing the glory of God, we need to turn to Acts chapter nine. So in Acts chapter 9, we see who was Paul before. Verse 1 says, But Saul, that is Paul, before his name was changed, was still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of the Lord. And I thought, it's kind of like a Democrat that doesn't like Trump. Like this, that illogical anger and hatred. They can't put actual proper words to their feeling. And I, I picture that's what Saul was like. He was so angry at Christ and at the church or what was going on. The purpose of Saul's travel to Damascus is in verse 2. Paul went and was going to the high priest to ask him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And if you're wondering what the way is, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any who belonged to Jesus, he wanted to bound them up and bring them to Jerusalem, where the full authority of the council would be exercised in trial for either acquittal or death. So we see who Paul was. We see what he's doing. Let's have a look at the encounter from verse 3. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Arise, go to the city, and you'll be told what to do. The men who were travelling with him stood, speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. What just happened? Saul, who would later become Paul, a highly studied, a highly credentialed Pharisee, who was anti-Jesus, and anti the people who would follow him, who had a murderous intent against them, encountered Jesus. But this wasn't just any encounter. This wasn't just some spiritual awakening that we might experience. Remember, we are looking at Jesus being the image of the invisible God. We saw that he radiates the glory of God in Hebrews. So Paul knew God as, an, as a Pharisee. He knew about the laws through his study. And he knew about the story of Jesus because he was alive at the time. But he had never really met him until now. Here on the road to Damascus, where he was met, not just by the risen Christ, but by the ascended risen Christ, in all the radiant glory of the Godhead. A direct encounter and a direct conversation done in person. And don't forget, too, that the light came before the voice. So Jesus appeared. And from that moment, Paul not just knows that Jesus is Lord, but he knows him as the image of the invisible God. So amazing when I think about that. When I think about the ascended Christ. It didn't the Bible tells us that five hundred people, or over five hundred people, saw him as risen. But here we see Paul 
seeing him as ascended, that Christ came to visit him, him directly, and that's why he was blinded. Because he came down with that glorious God, and that glorious God, you imagine, there's a hymn that says, Oh, the brightness of the glory shineth in my Saviour's face. You think about that glory that Paul experienced. And then you think about what he's written here in Colossians. He got to see Paul. He got to see Paul got to see Christ in in a way that we can only look forward to. So as we move on to verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through and for him. As a side note, did you know that between verses 15 and 20, the, the, the words all things or creation in every creature are mentioned seven times? Thus stressing that Christ is supreme over all, including earth and heaven, the people and the rulers as well as the angels. In verse 15, the firstborn of all creation, verse 16, by him all things were created. And also it says all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. And it says all things in the King James. And in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things. I found that rather interesting that it was mentioned seven times in the fact that God's number is seven. But moving on, back to verse seven, uh, 16, it says, For by him all things were created, and all things were created through him and for him. So let's just explore that for a little bit, shall we? If I was to mention the children's story, The Little Red Hen, anybody know what story I'm talking about? Yes, dare I say some of the older folk do. The story of the little red hen is a hen who found a seed of wheat. And thought, I might like to eat some bread. So when asked for some help to plant the, plant the seed, and then obviously to, um, to tend to it and then to harvest it and to mill it and to um, knead it into dough and, and to mix it through and uh, at the end bake some bread. And I see there's a perfect illustration of things being done by Christ, through Christ and for him. So let's Break it down, we look at the word by, the hen made the bread. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 9 says, And to bring the to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery, which is Christ, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Through, the hen not only collected the ingredients, but the hen planted it, harvested it, milled it, then put it all together. And as we've already mentioned that Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes 
to the Father except through me. And for the handmaiden, the bread for herself, for her pleasure. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, in the King James Version, it says, For thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for thou hast created all things, and for your pleasure they were created. When we think of creation, what do we think of? We think of Genesis. Genesis means beginning. And as a Christian, it's the foundation of our salvation. It is here in the opening chapter of the book of the Bible that people, as people we can see everything is set up by him, through him, before him. And sometimes we struggle when we think about God's power and trying to understand it. Why is that? Is it because we associate the term power with something like Thor's hammer? Oh, we are living in an age where we are surrounded by heresy that is used to undermine God, as was the church in Colossae, which we are seeing and have seen through the curriculum in our schools and things that we see in documentaries on the TV when it comes to creation. Well, I like watching a documentary as much as the next person. I love the camera work, especially with someone like David Attenborough, but he surprises me. For someone who can get so close to the creation, say, so how can you not see God in what you are looking at? And yet, he talks about evolution and undermining God as the creator. So I want to encourage us all to see the power and the love of God in the building blocks of Genesis using the three simple words that we've already looked at, by, through, and for. As we saw in the, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, in the beginning, the first words of the Bible, in the beginning. What's the next word? In the beginning what? In the beginning God. God was there at the beginning. Want to know about power? He's there at the beginning. And through, God said, God spoke everything into existence. It wasn't made over a period of millions of years. He spoke and it happened. That's power. But you know, there's more to it than that. It's not just speaking something into existence. But when you look at the, you look at the passage as you, as you listened to it being read to you this morning and you read through it yourself, we see a lot more than that. When we look at creation of the days in order of what was created, we see something so incredible and so amazing. We see that each day of creation was a preparation for the next day. It wasn't just like throwing spaghetti on the wall and hoping something comes good of it. Each day of creation was preparation for the next one. It reminds me of a nesting mother. And I, I remember when we were expecting our first, I remember Jess um, preparing for it, organising and 
like organizing all of the stuff that was going to be needed for a newborn, preparing the room and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And it just rem it reminds me of, and it takes me back to Christ, preparing. What was he preparing for? Preparing for us. Each thing in creation, each day of creation is leading to the last one, which is let us make man in our own image. And that is the fall. He created everything, not just for us, but for him. Because as we have read, that we're created for his pleasure. Psalm 100 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We move on, we see in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Being before all things means he is before even time, as in John 1, 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Other religions have Jesus as a prophet, and a lot in the community have him just as a normal you know, a normal man. He was moral, but he was just normal. But here was there he was at the beginning with God as as God and it is by, through and for him that all things hold together. Or as the King James Version puts it, if you're wondering why I'm a reference to King James Version, it's a version I grew up with. So please bear with me. It's um it's the one that I grew up with for a long time. And it's one that when I do my Bible study, I have the ESV, which we use here at Reforming. And right beside that is my King James Version. And I read them both together all the time. But in the King James Version, it says, He is before all things, and by him all things consist. And it is that word that I want to look at now, the word consist. Consist means to be made up or composed. So when we read it, not only was Jesus there before all things, if you're going to create something, you kind of have to be there, don't you? At the beginning, but it's because of him that everything exists. Now, some of you have met my dad. And if you have, you would know that he drives for eight trains. And if you haven't met him yet, guess what? My dad drives for eight trains. Why is this relevant, you ask? Well, the makeup of a freight train is known as a consist. And in the yard, the train gets put together, all the wagons get moved about and whatnot. And when it's complete, what goes on the front? The locomotives. The freight cars, no matter what the cargo is, are nothing without the locomotive. Just as life is nothing without Christ. How do we know it? In John chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Without Jesus, without the light, we live in darkness for here, to and through eternity. 
So with him all things consist. He's our creator. What does all this mean? We move forward into verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What does that mean? That he is the head of the body. Many years ago, I'm going to tell you a little story here. Many years ago, in the hallway of my grandparents' place, was a couple of printouts of things that my cousin Angela had um, printed up from when she was at school. Now, it must have been a long time ago. Um, probably early, early primary school. Because one of them said something like this. Our heads are the boss of our bodies. Why does that stick out? I don't know, but it's something I read a lot. And I often think about it. Our head is the boss of our bodies. And if you're wondering, because as I said, there was a couple of printouts. If you're wondering what the other one said, there was something about giraffes. What it actually said, I don't know. But did you know that giraffes don't have vocal cords? It is true. So is Jesus the boss? Well, he is. We've already established his power through creation and that nothing exists without him, but yet he is so much more. I mean, when you think of a boss or a head of a big corporation or business, what do you think of or who do you think of? Some may say Trump, but I said, I thought, I originally thought of Kerry Packer, who was the former head of Channel 9. He was somewhat of a dictator, someone who rules with an iron fist, someone who wields immense power, and someone who is across everything. And what he says goes. He's the person that fought so hard to get the rights of the cricket, but his Channel 9 news came first. So if it was exciting and the cricket didn't matter, he was the boss, he wanted his news, so the cricket had to wait. That was someone who had power. The people of Australia might have wanted to watch the cricket, but it didn't matter. He had the power, so what he said goes. We see Jesus is so much more than someone like Carrie Backer. Apart from the obvious, because the body is the church. And who is the church? It's the bride of Christ. Which makes Christ what? The groom. Christ is so much more than just a boss or a CEO or a powerful man. He's the head of the church, not a slave owner forcing members to do what he wants. Instead, he loves us, the church, as the groom loves his bride. And through this love, we are ultimately compelled to love him and to serve him through keeping his commandments. Jesus is more, and there is more. Remember Peter's response to the question that we asked in the beginning? Who do you say that I am? Well, let's have a, a quick look back at Matthew 16 again and we'll see Jesus' response to Peter's response. So, Matthew chapter 16 from verse 16 reads, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. 
and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's this confession of Peter's, that Christ is the Son of the living God, that the church, which Jesus is the head, is built on. Peter confessing faith in Christ as the Messiah is the foundation of the church. Christ is more. He is the head. He is the cornerstone. He and his church can't be defeated. And says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what Jesus said to Peter. And Paul says here in verse 18, he is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus conquered death. Peter said in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. And during his sermon at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, God raised him, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. To quote a, a mob boss from Gotham, that's power you can't buy. Paul found this out when he met the risen, ascended Christ on the road to Damascus. And on to verse 19, we see the fullness of God. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. A couple of things here. Firstly, this is God's choice for two reasons. God told us after Jesus was baptized. Behold a voice from heaven. This is in Matthew chapter 3. Behold a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in with whom I am well pleased. And then he said it again. This time it was directly to two of the, Jesus' disciples on the mountain where the transfiguration took place, where God said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Peter shares this experience in his second epistle so beautifully. It says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice come from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And the second reason, the other reason we see that it was God's choice for all the fullness is the fact that only Jesus was able to satisfy God with regards to sin. The Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. 
verse 20 of chapter 1 in Colossians. We find out why God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And says in verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconcile all things to himself does not mean that Jesus' death saves all, all people. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Why? Because the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slackness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish. He's able to save to the uttermost anyone who comes to God through him. It's open to anyone. Read verse 20 again. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want to talk about the blood of that cross. I um, I wonder if anyone here is familiar with the movie The Green Mile. And I apologise if I've thrown in a few movie references here, but sometimes things come to you. And, um, yeah. So if you've seen the, if you if you've seen or are familiar with the movie The Green Mile, it's a movie that is set in Louisiana's Cold Mountain Penitentiary. And the... Um, the specific part of the penitentiary was the, was death row. And it was known as the Green Mile because the floor was green, apparently. And it was based in the 1930s. Back then, if you were sentenced to death, you were executed by electric chair. So the prisoner would come to the mile where they would stay in their cell awaiting uh, execution. Prior to the execution, the night before, day before, they will be given a final meal. They'll be given a meeting with a priest. And then they'll be brought before a small audience in a room for their execution. So the execution, during the execution, and once the prisoner was seated, the guard would say, Prisoner, you have been condemned to die in the electric chair by a jury of your peers, a sentence imposed by a judge in good standing in this state. Is there something you would like to say before this sentence is carried out? And the prisoner would then speak for a final time, and then a mask would be placed over his head, the electrodes and a, a, um, a wet sponge would be placed on the head, and be all attached. And then the guard would say, Prisoner, electricity shall now pass through your body until you are dead in accordance with state law. May God have mercy on your soul. That seems fairly painless, doesn't it? I mean, apart from the fact that he's going to get electrocuted, but it's only going to last a small time. In the lead-up, he was looked after by the, the guards in the cell till the appointed time came. And in this instance, the... The, the law said that 
because of the crime he committed, he was sentenced to death, and that death was electrocution. But this verse that we're looking at at the moment says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do we truly understand what Jesus had to go through by the blood of his cross in order to reconcile us to himself? Now, there are lots of things that Christ is, does go through when you read it through the, throughout the Gospels and, and even in the Prophets. But I found nine that deal with his, the physical nature of what he had to go through. First, there was his agony and prayer in the garden where his sweat became like great drops of blood. Second, there was these, the kiss of betrayal where Judah, Judas would come and kiss him. And thirdly, was the denial of Peter. And you may wonder about that's not really physical because Peter did it. But Luke tells us that Jesus looked at Peter. You imagine what Jesus is going through at that time. He looked at Peter, and it was that look, and as Luke tells us, it was a look that melted Peter. Then Peter went out and wept bitterly. The fourth one is a scourging. That wasn't a term I was re- I've been really familiar with throughout my whole life. I've read it a number of times, but I didn't really understand what it was. And there I say it, another movie reference, The Passion of the Christ, it's actually in there. And it goes in, it shows it in graphic detail. And I've only seen The Passion of the Christ once. I didn't really want to see it again. But I got and I got a description of it. I found that. It says it's an incredible, painful torture inflicted by a whip with a mul- with multiple leather cords that would commonly have bits of sheep bone and sharp bits of metal embedded throughout. This tool was designed to inflict maximum pain and blood loss. Fifth. The crown of thorns, a twisted crown of thorns shoved down on his head. Sixth, he was beaten and mocked. You think of the, he's already gone through the, the scourging and then he's had the crown of thorns and now he's getting beaten and mocked. He was not recognisable. And even scripture, back in way back in Isaiah, it's prophesied that his face was marred more than any man. Couldn't be recognised. Seventh, he had to carry his own cross. Imagine a prisoner on the Green Mile had to set up their own chair for their own execution. Didn't happen, but Jesus had to carry his own cross. Eight, he was nailed to the cross from his hands and feet. And nights, he was dropped into the ground. Nailed to the cross, dropped into the ground. And they say that as that dropping motion that made all these bones go out of joint. That's just the physical aspect of his suffering. They haven't even gone into the fact that he was completely alone, rejected by the people, rejected by the leaders. His disciples fled, but he was forsaken by God. 
It is what Christ went through to reconcile us to himself. He was the only one worthy in God's eyes. He was the only one who could stand it. As we move on, verse 21. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Hostile mind. It's one of society's biggest hurdles. Going back to the surveys from the beginning of our time together, it would be fair to say that people's nonplussed attitudes towards Jesus is simply because people have convinced themselves they don't need him. By extension, they don't need God. They think that they are okay with their life, whether they believe in heaven or not. And if they do believe in heaven, they think that they are a good person because they haven't committed any major crime or that no matter what they've done, what they are doing, it's not against the law, so it's okay. Even if it's against the Bible, it doesn't matter. To them, it's okay because it's not against the law. There's a problem with our hearts. Jesus talks about the trouble with our mind or our hearts in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. It says, Have you heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery? And I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That kind of flies in the face of you can look but not touch, doesn't it? What about murder? That's one of the big ones. Whoever hates his brother, he's a murderer. John, First John chapter 3 says that. So we can hide our mind from people. We can hide what's in our heart from people. We can, and we can even convince ourselves that we are okay. But it's really important to know that nothing is hidden from God. The problem is the true state of our heart. No. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Not only do they defile a person, not only do they defile us, but they separate us from God. Just because we might not do all of the big sins, you know, adultery and murder and whatnot, doesn't mean we're okay. Even through this state of our heart, Christ still reconciled us by the blood of his cross. And in doing so, Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jude is only one chapter in the book. So Jude 24 and 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. First impressions often count for a lot, don't they? Well, we see here that Jesus makes God's first impression of us truly amazing, says holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I was trying to think of an example of what that might look like. Jesus presenting someone to his father who was God. And I thought maybe it's like on, um, here I go again, Downton Abbey, where the the young woman had their, their coming out and they got presented before the king. And it was usually with their, their mother. But there was no real depth to that, was there? Just look, this is my daughter, you know. Then I wondered about a groom presenting his bride to his father. So I looked back at my own experience, as great as it was. When, but when my dad met Jess, we were just courting. So by the time we were married, by the time I came to present Jess as my bride to my father, Jess was already known. She was already loved and welcomed into the family. So what would it look like? What would it, Jesus presenting us to his Father look like? And we're, com- and we're coming toward, to the end. And I'll, I want to share something. I haven't actually run this by yet, but I really want to share with you a personal experience that occurred just last week that made me see what Jesus presenting somebody would look like. Someone who was once alienated, hostile in mind, who did evil deeds, was yet reconciled through the blood of his cross. That's what Jesus has done for us. We were once alienated and through that blood on his cross, now being presented to his father. And I, I thought so long and hard about that verse, I couldn't quite grasp it until last week. It seemed to make sense. It made sense to me. I just didn't share with you what happened. If you were there last week, you or watched online, you would have seen, um, and I don't want to embarrass Jess, but you would have seen Jess um, singing. I really saw this because of the preparation for today, but what I saw was a glimpse of what it might be like if I were there to witness Jesus presenting someone to his father. See, I saw Jess accept a call to sing for the service. For who? For God. I saw genuine love for the groom being Jesus, and I saw a willingness to serve the family of the father. Want a bit of context to it? Last week, about 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, got a message from Ryan saying, can Jess sing? There's nobody else available. And Jess accepted and sang for the first time. That included a new song from camp, which is relatively unknown to us. So Jesus, uh, Jeff is there singing for the very first time. There's nervousness there. It's There's no preparation time. 
lead up and Jesus was there. Jesus was there to help her to be able to sing. And if you if you watch it again, you wouldn't know that it was her first time. It was amazing. It really was. And I just, the picture of that, what I saw, was what it might be like to see Jesus presenting somebody, somebody who was willing, who loved Jesus and who was willing to serve the family. As we come to verse 23, it says, If you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I became a minister. We started today looking at a question that Jesus asked his disciples, didn't we? Who do you say that I am? And now I want to finish asking the same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? My prayer is that, as you've heard this message, you will be able to say that he, being Jesus, is the creator. He is the head. He is the reconciler. Most importantly, he is my Lord, Saviour. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Father, we thank you so much for all that you are to us. And we thank you so much that you revealed yourself in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would come down and give of himself, all of himself, through the blood of his cross, dying on that cross, going through all that pain and suffering for us who were once alienated and separated from you. But because of him, because of that wonderful and miraculous work that was accomplished on that cross, we are now presented before you, our great God. So we thank you for this time and we pray that as we leave that we will know that you your Son, or our Creator, and our Head, and our Reconciler, and our Lord and Saviour. We pray this in His name. Amen.